Grace and peace to you this Lord's Day from the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. I'm Dr. Baron Mullis, and I'm the pastor of this congregation, and along with our liturgist, the Reverend Megan Lecluse, and our director of music and all of our musicians, I am delighted to welcome you to our service of worship for the fifth Sunday of Lent. As we move into the body of the service, I'd like to call to your attention a couple of items for our common life together. The first is to note that Barbara Chapel's series on the poetry and scriptures of Lent is ongoing. You can find out more about that on our church website. I'd also like to highlight for you that our anti-bias conversation group will be reading White Fragility for a discussion on April the 18th. You can find out more about that on our website as well. Finally, I would commend to your attention all of our Holy Week observations, and as I've been saying, you'll find that on our website as well. Will you join me now in our responsive call to worship? With my whole heart, I seek you. Do not let me stray from your commandments. I treasure your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you.
Let us pray for the cleansing of our hearts, confessing our sins to the one whose mercy is everlasting. O Lord God, we know that in Jesus Christ you came to us as prophet, priest, and king, but we place our trust elsewhere. We trust in military might, we trust in financial stability, we trust even in the church, but our trust is misplaced. It is Christ alone in whom we should trust, and so we come in penitence to declare that we need forgiveness. Turn our hearts to Christ, O God, that we may worship aright and trust in hope the one who has loved us, even unto death. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God's mercies never come to an end. Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ we are forgiven.
the lesson is taken from the book of Hebrews, reading in the fifth chapter from the first verse to the tenth. Listen for the word of God to us this day. Every high priest chosen from among mortals is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is subject to weakness and because of this he must offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as for those of the people. And one does not presume to take this honor but takes it only when called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but was appointed by the one who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Join me now, if you will, in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I wish that I could at least tell you who wrote Hebrews, or that I could tell you when it was written, or even to whom it was written, but I can't. All of that is lost to the mists of time. Tom Long writes, Imagine being handed a book today with a comment, Here, I think you might enjoy it, this. It was written in America or Russia or France, I'm not sure, by a Jew or a Gentile. Anyway, it was written sometime between 1920 and 1970. Enjoy. Even still, though, I have a strong hunch that it is also not an overstatement to say that every time a Presbyterian pastor prepares to preach a text from the letter to the Hebrews, there is a theology professor from one seminary or another lurking somewhere in the background quoting Calvin to them, and it is a very specific quote from Calvin also. To know the purpose for which Christ was sent by the Father and what he conferred upon us, we must look above all else at three things in him. The prophetic office, kingship, and priesthood. This is the title of the 15th chapter of Calvin's Institutes to the Christian Religion. And he goes on to add this. In order that faith may find a firm basis for salvation in Christ and thus rest in him, this principle must be laid down. The office enjoined upon Christ by the Father consists of three parts. For he was given to be prophet, king, 
and priest. Before we unpack all of that, I want to give Calvin a nod as to why this particular division of labor is important. These are the three offices to which individuals were anointed in the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, and king. And as I have told you before, the word Christ means simply anointed. So if we are to understand what it means to be Christ, we must understand his role. Now I have accepted the reality that we don't sit around thinking about the threefold office of the Messiah in the letter to the Hebrews. I am aware that we probably don't ingest Calvin with our cornflakes, but we do rely on God in our daily lives, in the hard moments when we are trying to figure out what sort of person we need to be and what we need to do. We rely on God in the crisis moments when we want to know that there are ultimate things on which we may rely. And we rely on God as well in the midst of the humdrum, the day-to-day -day boring realities in which faith is, is sort of like the background music in our lives. It's always there, but maybe not in the forefront of our brains. In other words, like Calvin said, faith rests in Christ. The portion of Hebrews that we read today focuses on Christ's priestly office, but I don't find that I think it's all that helpful for us to divide up the work of Christ into component parts, so today I'd like for us to concentrate on having a better understanding of Jesus' life as prophet, priest, and king. Let's assume that Hebrews was written in the first century to someone familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. On that basis, we know what a prophet is. A prophet is someone whom God has anointed or appointed in order that God might have a mouthpiece in the world. Now, we sometimes think of prophecy in terms of foretelling the future. Indeed, there's a tendency among Christians to think of all prophecy as foretelling the coming of Jesus, but in much larger measure, it is not. Generally, prophecy in the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, refers to those who come to speak the truth to power. We know that the minor and major prophets of the Old Testament are the ones who came with dire warnings on their lips at times, such as Isaiah and Jeremiah, not to mention Amos and Obadiah and the others. Those warnings differed depending on the prophet's era. Elijah, for instance, took on the prophets of Baal, warning the Israelites against idolatry and, and placing their trust in fake gods. Samuel, on the other hand, had the unhappy task of confronting the king over his adulterous affair. Later, the major and minor prophets railed against the kings of Israel for having abandoned God's way for God's people and warned them that military conquest was coming and coming soon. 
The message was specific to every age. But here's what the prophets all had in common. It was a terrible job. In the early days of train travel, before safety regulations came into effect, the Sears and Roebuck catalog carried a wooden leg available for purchase named the Brakeman's Friend because so many railroad brakemen lost limbs in that industry. You would think with so many people losing their legs, people would stop taking the job, but apparently that wasn't so. The compulsion then, just as now, to feed oneself and one's family compelled enough people to need to take the job that there were enough customers with casualties to compel the Sears and Roebuck company to catalog market a prosthetic limb. That's sort of what it was like to be a prophet. The job was terrible, the outcomes were expected to be difficult, and yet one had to do it. Prophets didn't tend to be popular. Prophets didn't tend to live to old age. Given the number of them that felt compelled to preach all the time, you probably wouldn't want one for a neighbor. And also at a deep level, many of the prophets harangued God for making them prophets in the first place. But the priest job is a little better in the Bible, as long as you were an honest priest, and apparently those could be in short supply. Uh, if you were an honest priest, you got to keep a portion of the animal sacrifice that was offered to God. But, and this is key, we are not talking about a barbecue. It was a subsistence culture, so a portion of a burnt offering would be literally burned up for God, a portion would be allocated to the priest, small portion, and the giver got the rest to take home to feed their family. And priesthood could also be a dangerous profession in its own way. Uh, for instance, uh, once a year, the high priest would be chosen by lot to go into the Holy of Holies. And that's the most sacred part of the Jerusalem temple. They would go behind the curtain to the dwelling place of God on earth. There they must be prepared to encounter the transcendent God. It was a great honor to be chosen. But here's the catch. The other priests always tied a rope around the ankle of the priest they sent back in there just in case he dropped dead a fright or an imminent encounter with God. That way they could haul the carcass out without risking anyone else's life. And one has to wonder why that became a practice in the first place. I'm not sure if so, I'd be so keen on being a priest under those circumstances. Well, that leaves us with kingship. Well, kingship, at least, surely, must be a slam dunk, right? Eh, not so much. It was fine to be king, and indeed it was good to be king if you were King David or King Solomon. 
There were, of course, numerous uh, indiscretions for which these kings are known, but the kingdom remained healthy. The foreign invaders were held off, and they both died as old men in their own beds. But if you consider them the outliers, that's not such a great job to have either. If you are Jehoiakim, for instance, or Jehoiakim around the time of the collapse, well, the foreign invaders do bad things to captive kings. Uh, the victorious foreign invaders would, uh, well, let's just leave it at they do bad things. I don't need to get graphic about it. Whatever your imagination can conjure up, it was probably worse. So we have this model of prophet, priest, and king to describe the work of Jesus. And if we are honest, it is riddled with reasons one wouldn't touch the job with a ten-foot pole. And I wonder sometimes if our modern understandings of each is just as problematic as the ancient one. A prophet might well come off as being a bigoted loudmouth. The priest may seem no more relevant than Reverend Lovejoy on The Simpsons. And the king? Well, Americans don't have a great track record with royalty. What if, what if the prophet is the one who will tell us the truth when no one else will? What if the priest is the one who will intercede for us when we run out of hope? What if the king is the one who will never, ever leave us uncared for. Calvin wrote this also. Thus it is that we may patiently pass through this life with its misery, hunger, cold, contempt, reproaches, and other troubles, content with this one thing, that our king will never leave us destitute, but will provide for all our needs, until our warfare ended, we are called to triumph. Such is the nature of his rule, that he shares with us all that he has received from the Father. This was not a prophet, priest, or king like any the Israelites had encountered before. This is not a prophet priest or king like any we have encountered before. This is God as both prophet and rescuer. This is God as both priest and sacrifice. This is God as both king and servant. In other words, this isn't like anything else. Jesus isn't like anyone else. 
You know, these terms, prophet, priest, and king, get thrown around quite a bit to describe Jesus. But the truth is that more than whatever we could ask or imagine of the best of these, more than that is true of Jesus. Because in Jesus, the fullness of God chose to dwell. We do well to remember that the title Christ means the anointed one. But equally well, we must remember that the task to which Christ was anointed are tasks that none of us would want to take on. As the priest becomes the sacrifice, as the prophet is mocked to identify who is striking him, as the king receives his crown of thorns. The letter to the Hebrews seeks us to help us understand Jesus Christ. And at the heart of understanding Christ's work is to know that God is in the middle of it. Now there is a great mystery surrounding God's plan for salvation. It's not mysterious in the sense that it's secretive. It's mysterious in the sense that God is always transcendent beyond our ultimate knowing and yet also imminent, so close to us as to take on flesh and become incarnate. We are, to be sure, speaking of holy mysteries now, and yet even in the midst of these holy mysteries, Calvin tells us something about how we are to react to them. He reminds us that we are then drafted into Christ's priesthood. Jesus himself tells his disciples that we must take up our crosses and follow him. And that means that we, too, are called to be tellers of the truth, to serve, and to care for the uncared for. And the challenge for me, for you, for all of us, is this. Are we doing our best? So often, and I am as guilty of this as anyone, particularly during the pandemic, we want to make church undemanding. We want people to want to be with us, and so we want to make it accessible, and we want to make it easy to be a church member. This is all a good thing to do, to be inclusive and to be welcoming. And frankly, again, speaking of the pandemic, it is harder than usual to be the things we're called to be. I shared an article from The Atlantic last week that said in a nutshell that the pandemic is getting on everyone's last nerve. And as a result, our brains are slower and we are less receptive to the very things we most want to process. So, sure, certainly, now more than ever, we want to make Christian discipleship easy. And we may even rest on that old text that Jesus' burden is easy and his yoke is light. And it's true, they are. They are easy and light because we are joined to Christ in his work. But catch everything that means. 
Christ is not yoked to us to do our pleasure. No, we are joined to Christ that we may do his work. That means his work of truth-telling, his work of caring, his work of serving. And, And my question for you and for me is this. Are we doing our best? As we prepare for Easter, are we doing our best? As we live with this period of intentional separation lasting longer than any of us ever anticipated, are we doing our best? As we must seek out new and different ways to be the body of Christ in the world, are we doing our best? Gardner C. Taylor tells the story of a terrible storm on Lake Michigan in which a ship was wrecked near to the shore. The Northwestern student, Edmund Spencer, went into the raging water again and again, and single-handedly he rescued 17 people. When his friends carried him to his room, nearly exhausted and fainting, he kept asking them, did I do my best? We are joined to Christ in his work as prophet, priest, and king, so that we might, too, be truth-tellers, that we might be sacrificial givers, that we might offer care to the uncared for. We know what these words mean. We know what we, know what we are to do. And while it is often right to ask these questions of ourselves as a body, as a congregation. Sometimes we need to turn the question on ourselves individually. So to you and to me, the question comes. Are you doing your best? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let us together affirm what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. With grateful hearts, let us bring the fruit of our lives to God.
during the final days of his earthly life, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And in faithful obedience, he opened the way to eternal salvation. Let us open our hearts this day as we lift up our deepest needs and concerns to the one who is mighty to save. We pray for all leaders and people that by the power of your cross, you would drive out all violence, domination, and injustice in our world as you draw us to your Christ. And this morning, we especially pray for all those who feel threatened because of the color of your skin. We pray for the community of Atlanta. We pray for the victims and all of those who loved them. We pray against the rise in hate crimes, those that we have seen rising especially fast against Asian Americans and people of Asian descent. And we pray that each of us may recognize all people as created in the image of God. We pray for our war-ravaged world, that you would teach us to walk together in your way of righteousness and peace. We pray for the vocation of the church, that our prayers would bear the fruit of action as we hear the cries of pain and suffering of those in need. We pray for the poor, the terrified, and the oppressed, and those who are too much alone, that they may find a home in you as we serve them in your name. As your son anticipated his death on the cross in light of your steadfast love, may all who have died or who are dying be at rest in your eternal care. Through Christ, with Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, we glorify you, almighty God with unending thanks and praise. And pray these words along with the prayer your Son taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul, O oh my soul, what wondrous love is this, O oh my soul, what wondrous love is That's right. 
the question, did I do my best, is one that perhaps offers us the greatest opportunity for self-criticism, so much so that we may not even want to ask it, or certainly to answer it. But the truth that we remember as we come near the end of Lent is that Jesus did do his best. He gave his best. He gave his all so that we can ask that question of ourselves without fear. So now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen.